and welcome back to the show. We're Grace and Miranda, and this is Trash and Treasury, the podcast where we bring you some smart stuff, but also some absolute garbage. (laughs) (laughs) So on this week's episode, we will be talking about psychological experiments, some sort of groundbreaking ones, some ethically dubious ones, and some absolutely hilarious and adorable ones. (laughs) Yes, I can't wait for that. And maybe the biggest psychological experiment of all was pitting two rival cheerleading squads against each other with the exact same routine to see how they'd perform under pressure. Or as I like to call it, bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic synopsis. Yes. So we'll be talking about the Clovers, the Tauros and Torrents in our trash today. And of course, our hills to die on and our recommendations. But first things first, let's get stuck straight into Treasury. So psychological experiments have been the thing of fascination for myself Um, my whole life, actually. I studied it in high school, but I'm certainly no psychologist. Um, But what I do know is that um, there are some experiments that have been done that have given us a lot of the knowledge we have now about society, people, behavior. But during the experiments, there has also been, you know, questions of ethics and what, you know, what is worth the outcome? Is it worth actually putting your subjects through trauma? Um, And it just raises some really interesting questions. But there's also been some absolutely fascinating and non-ethically dubious experiments that are simply beautiful and wonderful, which we will also be talking about. <laughs> bit, of, bit of light and shade, as we always say in the podcast. Exactly. Um, so one groundbreaking one that a lot of people will know about. So I won't be going into it um, super in depth, but this one is called the Stanford Prison Experiment. And a lot of people might know about it, but it basically involves a series of actors who were assigned roles and they were all voluntarily entered into the experiment. Basically, it involved uh, whether you were a guard or a prisoner in a fake prison. And what it showed was people who were in the guard position um, became more brutal and more sort of aggressive and violent and the people who were prisoners um, sort of became fearful but also wanting to stand up against authority and it's such a complex study um, but it created a lot of um, traumatised participants and Mm. it was a really interesting experiment because people refer to it a lot and it it did give us a lot of knowledge inside, you know, in, the, in real life, you know, in prisons, uh, how if you're a guard or if you're a prisoner, what you might take on as your role and what kind of authority you're given and how that will make you act if you were given the power. Um, and it, basically after the experiment, this, is, this experiment was conducted before uh, psychological ethics was something that you mm. had to pass before you could do an experiment. Um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was the 70s. It was one. not that long ago, yes. Which is what's really shocking about it. Yeah. It is extremely shocking. And uh, what they've discovered since is a lot of the people who played the guards, uh, especially, were very, very shocked at their own behavior 
um, mm. and what they did under those circumstances by being told you're a guard, you have to silence your prisoners, you have to do all this, you have to do all that. It actually created some real stress and trauma for these uh, people to know what they were capable of um, when they might be absolutely lovely, delightful people outside in the real world. Um it just mm. and it really did traumatize them and and equally the participants in a different way as well having to just go through this experience what's also fascinating is all the participants had the opportunity to leave at any time but they didn't um i think there was one or two who did eventually leave but they didn't feel that they could they sort of took yes. on this role as if it was their role they knew that they were in an experiment they signed up for the experiment um they but knew the it. pressure in that situation still felt so real absolutely absolutely and so yeah it's it really did um uh make a huge splash and it and it was one of the defining factors as to why we have a medical ethics board now um or mm. for psychological experiments and what's interesting about the stanford prison experiment is what they kind of think it shows is that it doesn't matter sort of your personality type or such for how you'll behave in that situation. They're saying it's situational based and it's based on the role that you're given and the power you're given and that everyone um, will change to match their circumstances and do things that they wouldn't normally do or wouldn't feel good about. Um, And it reminds me a lot of another controversial one, which is the Milgram obedience experiment. Yes. I was obsessed with this experiment in high school. I think I did reports on it and everything. (laughs) Yeah, I think Stanford and Milgram are both two big um, classics part of the VCA psychology (laughs) curriculum. (laughs) Year 10, year 10 psychology. Um, And so with the Milgram experiment... They actually, what's interesting about this one is they didn't know what was being tested. Like in Stanford Prison Experiment, they were obviously in a prison dressed up as guards. They might have had some idea. Whereas in the Milgram Experiment, the participants were told it was a memory test. And the participants were told there was someone in the other room who um, had to remember certain words and their job... um, was to administer increasingly strong electric shocks and the supposed premise was to measure, you know, their motivation to remember these words. But the real Mm. thing that was being observed was whether or not people would continue to give these electric shocks even if the other person started to protest and they could tell it was harming the other person and the machine had like XXX, like very bad, very, but very they were being bad. told, keep shocking them. Um, and mm. likewise with that one, a lot of people were very traumatized for having Absolutely. taken part in that one. What's also interesting um, to that experiment is for anyone who doesn't know much about it, the people being shocked were behind a glass uh, sort of wall I guess kind of like you know in a interrogation room or something um, and they were all actors so they were hooked up to wires but they were not actually being shocked they were all actors and so yeah. the people being experimented on were the people giving the shocks not the people who were in the room getting shocked um, and there was a voiceover. So a lot of people did protest. A lot of people said, no, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm stopping this experiment. This is ridiculous. This person's clearly in pain. This is absolutely effed up. Um, But then this voiceover would – so this is the 
experimenter or another actor would say over the loudspeaker and also in a male voice, which is uh, something to be noted, do it. This is you've signed up to this. Keep shocking them. I'm telling you to keep shopping, shocking them. He didn't say anything about, you know, if you don't shock them, you will get blah. It was just simple instruction, but with severe authority. And mm. what it was trying to show was, you know, what will people do when told to do something awful? And yeah. it kind of proved the hypothesis that they would do these awful things. Um, but Equally, when the participants found out what the experiment really was and just going through that process, knowing what they were capable of and where they cracked under pressure, um, totally traumatised them. Mm. And even though this person was an actor, it's still a traumatic experience. Mm. It's a really crucial point you make that even the people that kept continuing were still saying things like, I don't want to do this. And They um, were protesting but told to do so, yeah. Yes. And so Milgram originally drew the conclusion that uh, what his experiment found was that people kept going all the way and so therefore we all have the capacity for evil within us. But looking at the experiment now, what people say is like, actually, no, like people knew it was wrong. And the people that managed to get out of it were just the ones um, that were best at being able to display their boundaries. But it wasn't that the people that kept going had capacity for evil. It was just that they maybe they didn't feel like they could stand up for themselves. Which is another point. um, A few other hypotheses have come about. um, You know about the fact it was a male voice and a lot of the participants were women. Um, not all, there was probably an equal mm. split really. Um, but also, you know, how, how powerless do you feel as a female in that situation in the 70s, you know, in a psychological experiment being told to, what to do by a really commanding voice um, in an experiment that's apparently been greenlit. Um, you know, like it's kind of, it's bizarre. And they recreated this experiment actually, um, which is horrible. And they recreated it with a mix of genders uh, who were pressing the button. But after this, obviously, people knew about the Milgram experiment, but only probably if you had done your research, I guess. Um, Mm. And instead of actors, get this, they Mm. used puppies and they really shocked them because animals didn't have rights, just like they didn't in lots of TV shows, like in Milo and Otis when they kill all the animals. It's just horrible. And, um, oh, that's so sad. It's really effing sad. And what it did show was that um, women were the ones who went to the full shock extent more than the men. And um, some of the hypotheses that came out at the time were like, oh, my God, women are really evil. And I was like, well, you know, maybe no. there's some gendered They've element to that. They've just been conditioned to be in subservient. Subservient situations. to instructions yeah. and also like, doing awful things because you're forced to do them like I don't know I think that it's a really horrible experiment and thank god we've got ethics now and yes maybe we have some interesting ideas that we've learned from it but totally wasn't worth what we put these people through I don't think you need an experiment to know that you know when people are forced to do things uh, in a army situation or in a any Mm. kind of brutal situation um, that people are going to follow instruction for fear of uh, retaliation you know or punishment and so it's just you know we didn't need to put these poor participants through this horrible process just to prove a hypothesis yeah oh that's awful I actually didn't know that example when they recreated mm. it 
What I think is funny now is that like every reality TV show pretends it's a psychological experiment. Like, yes. for example, <laughs> so a lot of the shows we talked about in season one. Too like, Hot to um, Handle, such an experiment. Too Hot to Handle was like, this is an experiment. It's like definitely doesn't have uh, a double blind control group and an experimental group. Like it's definitely, definitely not an does experiment. Not. Yeah. <laughs> so true. But onwards and upwards, the psychological uh experiment world became a little nicer eventually (laughs) and uh one adorable example that I have which again um other people might know of it's the classic marshmallow experiment which was Mm. also interestingly a Stanford experiment (laughs) and I think they were like "Hmm, maybe after the prison one we should like do a marshmallow one with children like Maybe that would be better. And um, well, they should have branded it harder as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Exactly. It's just not exactly. To you like that? No. They need to rebrand the experiment. Um, <laughs> and they needed to rebrand Stanford. So, this study basically involved a bunch of little children. So what they were testing was delayed gratification. Um, This was also back in the 70s. So this was, yeah, probably on the heels of the prison experiment, I would say. And Mm. so they used children from the ages of four to six. um, And what they said is that, you know, there was a marshmallow on a plate on a table and they left the children alone. But what they said to the children was, you can have this marshmallow. You can eat it whenever you want. But if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get another marshmallow. And if you Mm. wait another 15 minutes after that, you'll get another marshmallow. And this experiment was filmed and it is like heaven. So adorable. To watch. It is so adorable. If you haven't seen the footage, go and watch it. Watching these kids trying to not eat a marshmallow. Trying so hard. And they're just like, they're like, come on. Come on, come on. And they're like, oh, oh, I just really want it. I just really want it. And they're kicking the table. They're pulling their pigtails. I and wonder if kids today would care. Kids today would be like, can I have my Game Boy? Or yeah, kids exactly. don't even use Game Boys. What do kids have now? iPhone. Exactly. Like, if you can wait five minutes with no iPhone, you can have it for 10 minutes. That's wait, so true. You know. <laughs> no, kids wouldn't care about a marshmallow today. They wouldn't care about a marshmallow now. Um, so price. 600 kids took part in the experiment. And only a minority actually ate the marshmallow uh, immediately. Hmm. So of those who attempted to delay, a third of the participants actually delayed it long enough to have a second marshmallow, but they just couldn't hold on anymore. So most of them, Hmm. a third of them ate it at the second marshmallow. And then obviously a very small proportion went on to get multiple marshmallows. Um, And so actually... What's interesting is that in follow-up studies, the researchers found that children were able to wait longer for the larger rewards of two two marshmallows. Um, They tended to have better life outcomes. So they tended to have better SAT scores. They tended to have Mm. um, better jobs. They, you know, they've sort of um, done better in life. And it's really interesting because I guess these kids are very young, but... um, there's lots and lots and lots of different theories that have come from the experiment and they've recreated it a billion times because it's adorable. Um, but, you know, this is a long-term study because the kids in the 70s, you know, obviously still around now. Mm. And but it demonstrates long-term thinking, planning, measuring risk and reward, which is the kind of decisions like, should I go to the doctor? 
you know, Mm -hmm. the kind of the same decisions are needed to have those better life outcomes. Exactly. And, uh, but then there's also kind of, you know, how much of it did you get enough information on? So what were these kids' backgrounds? You know, what were their, what was their home life like? You know, um, there might be a lot of reasons why some of the kids just couldn't wait to eat the marshmallow. Well, yes. And that's another important point that Mm. correlation does not equal causation which is another yes. thing from year 10 psychology. So they're like, well done, babe. positive correlation between <laughs> um, being married and grey hair, as in they upwardly trend together. Really? But that doesn't mean that being married causes grey hair because obviously the external factor is age. Age. Would be <laughs> correlated with both those things. So, yes, it's true that like they really great example. socioeconomic yeah. thing that's driving that. It's not about the marshmallow. But have you seen um, the movie The Five-Year Engagement with Emily Blunt and Jason Segel? I feel like I haven't. Well, you mustn't have because they talk about this experiment. It's like a huge plot point. Really? Yes. So Emily Blunt's character is doing a Master's of Psychology and she is doing basically an adult's version of this experiment based on this experiment. (laughs) And what it is is... um, they have a box of stale donuts on the table mm-hmm. and they invite participants in to do like a questionnaire, which is all just a ruse for this donuts. And they say to them, oh, those donuts are from yesterday, um, but in 15 minutes we're bringing in the fresh donuts to see ah. if people would eat the old donuts or if they'd wait for the fresh ones. And what she was finding in this study, which is a movie, so I don't know if this is anything based in fact, but in (laughs) the movie, similar to what you were saying, in the movie, the people that ate the donuts that were stale were the people whose lives were not going so well um, in other areas or, you know, they didn't have many goals and stuff. And basically she is like doing this experiment and she talks about it a lot. And one day she brings home a pack of old donuts And she says to her partner, oh, don't worry, I'm going to get some new ones. She wasn't trying to do the experiment. But he starts eating the old donuts and she's like, oh, my God, like, I have to break up with him. Ah. He's a failure. (laughs) He ate the old donuts. Yeah, it's like a big plot point of that movie and it's all a homage to this experiment. Jesus. Imagine being that picky about, like... You, whether you're going to marry your partner or not, whether they eat old well, donuts Well, that's or why not. they're engaged for five years, but, you know. <laughs> Sounds dumb, spoilers. but I'll probably watch it. <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> I do love Emily Blunt. Another exactly. hilarious one that's possibly not real and has literally no basis, but I think it's also interesting. There was a social experiment done by uh, the Carlsberg Brewery. and um, oh, This is one of those bullshit ones like uh, – TV, reality TV shows. This is like so it is, But anyway, but go on. I don't know. It has some, you know, it, it could be real. Um, you don't know. Were anyway. psychologists involved or were marketing experts involved? That will tell you all you need to know. Um, nobody was involved other than advertisers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so but I'm pretty sure they were real people in the cinema. So anyway, um, idea is that the, su- that the subject. <laughs> so some unsuspecting couples go to watch a movie and in amongst the cinema there's um certain blocks of two seats that are free but Mm. every single person in the cinema is a tattooed giant bikey and a wife beater and um (laughs) and so um only a very small section of the couples actually went and took their seat and 
others left immediately. <laughs> Allegedly, Aww. these are real people. We don't, you know, we don't have a sound basis for this theory, but I read it and I thought it was hilarious. I think others What's will that too. got to do with beer? Uh, I have no idea. Or it was just a conversation starter. Well, just it's just basically Carl's about work, so. not judging books by their cover. But like, <laughs> yeah, our beer label know. is gross, but our beer is great. Our beer is awesome, but our label sucks, but we can't really change it because if we rebrand it, nobody will recognize us. Probably something like that, I'd say. Yeah. And also I have a really funny one. Uh, well, actually, it's actually not as funny. It's just actually really interesting. This yeah. one was testing the real realistic conflict theory. So basically it had... Uh, two groups of completely um, unknown to each other 11 and 12-year-old boys uh, on a camp. Mm. And they were completely separated from each other on this camp and they had to do tasks together. Um, They had to do all these different things together and they really bonded. Then they blended the two groups together eventually and there was just so much conflict because everybody who'd bonded in their little groups with all their mm-hmm. challenges that they had to work together to achieve and everything, they kind of clashed with this other team who also had their own little bonds. But then they added a group task where everyone had to walk, work together because of the um, – they just created this, like, drinking water problem and they were, like, you know, needed to really find some drinking water. Um, mm-hmm. And all of the kids had to work together to figure this problem out and it completely bonded both groups and it completely dismantled any sort of butthead conflict because all these kids are all complete, complete strangers too. So you don't really have, like, the time for kids to form these sort of integral bullying bonds or anything either. Like <laughs> – yeah, no, I, I, but I actually, but I do. I think that it's really interesting because they're completely not. It is. They're not. They're not friends. They're not from the same school. They haven't, yeah, you know, been able to form alliances. You know, but the whole the whole thing showed that you know when groups work on tasks together, which as much as I hate icebreaker breaker activities and things like that, um, you know when groups do work on things together, they actually do bond and um it can sort of sort out a lot of conflict. I mean, it's interesting because what I was reflecting on when you were describing that experiment is this whole situation of putting groups of people into rival groups, getting them to spend intense amounts of concentrated time together with a goal, getting them to bond, and then getting them to compete against other groups. Like that's a situation we recreate all the time. Sports, houses at school... You know, we're always putting people in those situations. So I think that's interesting that um, even with knowing the yeah. finding of that experiment, we still do that. And so, you know, it happens in sporting clubs. It happens as well, let me say, with rival cheer squads, mm. just hypothetically with the Toros and Clovers, one might say. <laughs> so I really do think that uh, we could use this experiment in our next segment as we analyse the rival cheer squads and talk about Bring It On, because I do wonder what the psychologists of yesterday would say about these two rival groups who then, you know, find a mutual admiration for each other and... You know, there we go. <laughs> it's a loose connection, but well done. <laughs> Let's talk, bring it on. <laughs> so it is 20 years since the cheerleading movie Bring It On came out to our screens. 
and delivered us many iconic lines and just opened the world of competitive cheerleading to the world in a way it hadn't been before. I think, you know, Bring It On's iconic because before Bring It On, I think people thought cheerleaders are people that stand on the side of football games, but Bring It On showed this like amazing gymnastic world. So I assume everyone has seen it, but if somehow you're an amazing person who would not have fallen for Milgram's conformity experiment and who somehow <laughs> like did not <laughs> go with the pressure to watch Bring It On, I will just recap the plot. So Kristen Dunst is the star as Torrance, who <laughs> becomes the cheer captain after this other former captain, Red, retires. And her team is about to go to nationals. They win nationals every year. But she finds out that their routines have actually been stolen and copyrighted from this awesome group of black cheerleaders. So she goes through a big existential crisis about this and then they start actually doing their own work and write their own cheers and there is a key uh, amazing family that moved to town who drive a lot of the drama, which is this brother and sister duo who are both very charismatic. Missy, who's played by Eliza Dushko and her brother is the love interest for Kirsten Dunst. So, you know, hilarity, romance ensues. It's the whole package. We still quote it. Everyone loves it. You know, I can't wait to just get into it. I rewatched it the other day. I am ready to talk about it. And, you know, it's been 20 years. Everyone's talking about it and it's time for us to talk about it. Everyone is talking about it and I cannot believe it's been 20 years. Like I feel so old, like the fact mm-hmm. that it's been 20 years. But um, yeah, it's been on, you know, free-to-air television. Um, it's been the subject of a lot of articles, um, you know, just kind of highlighting the significance of Bring It On and, you know, um, also all these really interesting facts that I did not know about the film. Mm. The first being that this movie was turned down 27 times before it got the green light and they stated that this was because they couldn't envision cheerleaders being heroes and that the content was too dumb how sexist (laughs) and while that's true um it's still great and luckily someone believed in it because you bring it on and it's actually not too dumb it has heaps of um serious themes Exactly, which I will get to. And Marley Shelton was originally cast as Torrance, but then backed out to star in a different film. Now, you might not know Marley Shelton because I don't really, but she starred in another film which was rival to Bring It On and it came out around the same time and it was called Sugar and Spice. Mm, Have you seen Sugar and Spice? No. Really? That's so funny. Um. I've seen Sugar and Spice and it is basically about cheerleaders who become bank robbers to pay for like the head cheerleaders baby essentially and it's really silly as well but it kind of is just like everyone thought that it was just a little bit more cutting edge so Molly Shelton Mm. was cast as Torrance and then at the last minute backed out to star in Sugar and Spice which totally tanked and um, Kirsten Dunst uh, was not super interested in the role. She was asked to be in mm-hmm. the le- in, in the lead after Molly Shelton backed out, but she wasn't super interested. But she was filming something super depressing at the time, 
And <laughs> basically what she said is that she was like, oh, I need something fun. So this will be like a fun yeah. summer project. So she's like, whatever, I'll do the cheerleader film. And that and is I'll literally. And I'll just get some money. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just get some money and have a good time being a fun cheerleader because she was, you know, in this horrible, depressing film. And, um, you know, that's kind of how it all started. And almost so interesting. Nobody- it's so funny that um, all those people turned it down. Because yes. they would be kicking themselves. And the same thing um, happened with Harry Potter. It was turned down from like 19 publishing agencies. Whoa. And once a year, those 19 publishing agencies get together for a drink to commiserate how they all turned down what would have made them <laughs> like incredibly rich. <laughs> That's hilarious. I know. That is brilliant. <laughs> Oh, God. And another person who was not on board with this movie in the beginning was the ca- Eliza Dushku, who played Missy. Um, oh, because she it thought be it was too dumb. Her. Yeah, she thought it was too dumb. But seriously, this but was the biggest role. She plays that character throughout the movie. Throughout the movie, she's like, this is so dumb. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I will but- disagree with you that this is her biggest role. I think Buffy and Dollhouse um, could no. arguably be bigger for her than True you know. Calling was the only thing that I thought that she was awesome in. She was yeah, she was alright and sort of memorable in Buffy, but this was her biggest, most well known role, and she really hasn't done that much more since, like bring it on and the dollhouse and stuff like she kind of really hasn't done much in her adult career um which is fine but you know it's just so funny that so many people did not believe in this film and then it's just made Mm. them so famous and gotten them you know all these accolades the only person who was interested in this film from the beginning was gabrielle union um who plays isis who's the lead of the clovis Mm. and she basically was in it from the beginning but she also auditioned for sugar and spice and she was rejected because they didn't want to go down the quote-unquote urban path aka hire a black woman and so they are kicking themselves also because their movie tanked and bring it on was amazing and you know she was an absolute legend in bring it on but she was always up for bring it on she was like yes this is going to be an amazing film that's and interesting because I actually um, read an interview with Gabrielle Union, which she gave this year. Yes. And it's actually really interesting because I didn't necessarily get that impression. Um, she did say in it that she had tried Sugar and Spice, but what she said is she really didn't like the script of Bring It On at all. Yeah. And she actually asked them to rewrite huge sections and she before, like she didn't want to do it until you know they were like sure you can rewrite the every clover dialogue in this whole movie <laughs> because apparently it was just really stereotyped terrible dialogue that was like you know lots of like black stereotype things like yes. I'm gonna scratch her with my long fake nails and she was like um can we instead just have like a strong black leader with dignity who's just cool we try that, guys. Yeah, and they clearly listened to her or they got on board with this um, mm. idea and, and it is actually a really cool representation. I mean, yes, it, it is a dated film and I'm not pretending <laughs> to say that it is, you know, um, groundbreaking in, you know, lots of ways, but it does hit some nails on the head and um, it totally brought up and brought cultural appropriation and theft um, yes. into a popular, accessible dialogue and also white savior complex and the white savior complex yes so you know stealing routines was a big part of the film again if you haven't seen it and where the hell have you been um but what 
what it turns out is that the Toros had been stealing the East Compton Clovers routines for years and they had no idea until Torrance became captain and they showed her what was actually going on. And then when it came that they both qualified for regionals, um, Torrance was like, no, this isn't fair. Like they need to be there because it's not a so fair win. So they both win. qualified, but the Clovers couldn't afford to go. So they, they weren't going to go. compete. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, it's not fair that they can't come just because they can't afford their plane ticket. Like, you know, and she asks her dad to get her company to sponsor them and stuff. And they're like, we don't need this. You know, we don't need Yeah, you. They're like, is this hush money? Because you want us to, you know, sign this NDA that you've been stealing our routine. She's like, no, it's not hush money. She's like, oh, so it's guilt money. Cause you feel really bad. And you think that if you pay our way out, it absolves you of like this theft and all your undeserved victories. Exactly. And uh, it was a really uncomfortable moment. It was, I think, quite groundbreaking to dispel it was. that saviour complex. I remember watching that and being like, oh, oh, my God. But then I was like, mm. actually, she's awesome. Like, I remember thinking, having those waves of emotion, like being like, oh, my God, she ripped up the check. Like, she was doing something really nice. And then I was like, mm, wait, totally. it's really complicated. And, oh, wow. You know, all of our friends were having these conversations at sleepovers and stuff. Like, I think, you know, it really did bring up some really interesting issues conversation along yeah but I re- what I really love about it is that you know in a, in addition to showcasing those things they also showed you know how two differing completely different people and different groups can have respect for one another and mm-hmm. as Gabrielle Union says to Kirsten Dunst in that scene she's like but promise me one thing that when we both go to regionals or we both go to the finals or whatever that you bring it you know, you bring it, you don't hold back because you feel sorry for us and da-da-da-da-da mm, you feel guilty that you won. We don't want a tokenistic win away, you know. Yeah, we want to have a fair competition and she's like, fair enough. And they're kind of like, you know, we just understand each other, that's all. And mm. it's just, it's really cool. It's kind of like, right, okay, fair enough. It's a fair competition and good on you and, you know, it's just, it's, it's really cool. I think it's, so cool. it's it's held the test of time. Um, watching it again 20 years later, like that is still a pretty good scene. And how shocking that at the same time, 20 years ago, they couldn't even get a black man character in that rival movie, Sugar and Spice. Like I know. That's so shocking how far we've come. Totally. And mm. um, what's really interesting as well is that, you know, these routines were – so good and I think um I think I heard another really interesting fact that the they got a choreographer to do the East Compton Clovers routines and then they had someone else literally copy those routines and you know put some blonde hair on it and make it their own Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. to purposefully mimic those routines um in a sort of white high school trashy sort of girly way and mm-hmm. it's quite clear in the film that the East Compton Clovers are effing cool and like mm-hmm. when um you know Isis my favorite scene in the whole film is when you know she walks out and they're like I say Isis and she's like I said and she puts her hands up and she just looks so confident and like she's just such a legend and then they just go burr you know and they launch into the mm-hmm. routine also, this has been going viral on TikTok at the moment as well. There really? is a bring, there is a bring it on challenge, and it's all the clovers routine. So it's it's to the clovers, amazing. and everyone is doing the like full routine, and it is freaking amazing to watch on TikTok to actually have people recreate it. It's just it's just so iconic, and um, interestingly as well, 
the ending was not planned that the Clovers would win. So it was always planned for the Tauros to win. And um, this is because they wanted an ending that sort of felt like the trajectory that a Hollywood film would be given that the people that were following the Yeah, it was a big shock that I think they didn't win. It was a huge shock, but that was also another really cool thing that came of the movie that people were talking Mm. about. Oh, but why didn't the Tauros win? It's like, well, the Clovers were better. And they were, to be honest. Their routine kicked ass and Mm -hmm. they were amazing. And everyone filming it felt that um, and also sort of felt that their routine was so epic. Really? So how did it change? So what changed was they – what I've heard, I've heard conflicting theories about this because you, you never know exactly, but um, they wanted a happy ending. So they wanted to have this sort of extra scene where despite that the Clovers lost and the Toros won, it was like a fair competition and um, they wanted to have this scene with Torrance and Isis, um, you know, having this kind of camaraderie moment, but that never got that that never happened um, and instead they introduced that earlier they introduced that with the whole we just get each other bit you know they did they did that really yeah. well and um so what came instead was that they were all having sort of fun on set and they played the mickey song um which is now the iconic ending where they're all kind of dancing together and having their own little solos and just being silly was that improvised it was improvised, yes, completely. <gasps> so cool. And now it's such an iconic ending that when they actually did it for fun, it's kind of like a film wrap. Like they probably they probably thought that maybe they'd use it a little bit in the credits or they might use some fun little snippets here and there or just for their own cast fun. And um, because it was so epic um, and so cool, they felt that that was enough of a happy ending for the audience because it was so cool that they were all dancing together and all just being really silly, that that made everyone feel good. So therefore we could allow the Clovers to win because we all still mm. felt good at the end that everyone was dancing together, wow. which is kind of really that, problematic. But yeah, uh, like yeah. it still I was, was like that- a really great ending. Like in the end, they made a really good choice, but that was not the plan. <laughs> What's interesting about that is that does seem really dated because it is like, oh, but the white lead lady, she still has to win, right? Like when you watch it now, you're like, it is a happy ending that the Clovers won. Totally. Like we've come a long way. Yeah. And what's interesting as well in the article interview I was reading with Gabrielle Union is she was saying like um, a lot of people put Isis on, is that her name? ISIS? Yes, it is, unfortunately. Oh, okay, cool. Really, I was yeah, like, did I say that wrong? Okay. <laughs> I know. Um, what Gabrielle Union has said is she has seen her Clover's character Isis on lists from the greatest movie villains of all time. And she's like, since when was what? she a villain? Just because she's standing up for herself, it is the very like, ooh, aggressive black woman, you know? Whereas mm. she actually was like, you know, arrival, arrival, dream, arrival, but a also villain. pandering to the very, you know, very tone policed, very, you know, she wasn't, she never even yelled like her little posse of friends were more aggressive or whatever. So like that in itself is problematic that she had to be like so refri- refined yes, and, you know, dignified the whole time. But as Gabrielle Union said, she's like, what, but how was she a villain? Like she actually was just standing up for herself yeah. and her community. After well, like a something bad was done to them, it's interesting uh, you bring up her 
posse. Um, uh, an actress uh, by the name of Natina Reed, who you might know better from, Yo, Pauletta, girl, you the bomb. You the bomb, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just got touched by an angel. You got touched by an angel, girl. Yeah. Um, you know, the the ISIS offsider who was really kind of aggressive and really, you know, she's, you know. Intimidating. And they were like, can I get bit up by this small woman? Oh, God. We're so scared. <laughs> get in the car. She's get so in the funny. Mazda 3 and get out of here. Anyway, <laughs> so sad. She's actually she actually died um, in a car crash. Um, oh. Well, not a car crash. She got hit hit by a car um and she was also a singer which I didn't know but um yeah this was uh quite some time ago back in 2012 so that was awful and another uh tragic person who um died after bring it on in 2009 at the age of 34 was Torrance's problematic boyfriend Aaron God, really? Yes. Um, Richard Hillman was the actor's name and he passed away um, in 2009 uh, and no cause has been released to the public. So we have no idea why. Um, but yeah, both incredibly tragic um, events after, you know, such an iconic movie. And mm. I didn't know this until recently, but um, yeah, I it's think. It's a bit like Glee. A bit like Glee, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, my God, this cool movie, but it's had some, yeah, some tragic aftermath as well. But it's also really cool that we're talking about it now and, you know, that these actors are all being really celebrated, especially Gabrielle Union. (laughs) Mm. She has actually gotten, like, very – she's, like, a big celebrity, I think. She's kind of been a slow burn, like, Bring It On One was, like, one of her big breakout roles. Yeah, like, she's so awesome and, and, you know, this 20-year reunion – uh, talk has kind of, you know, um, been a bit of a Gabrielle Union resurgence. So I think she's going mm. to see some, you know, much overdue accolades and uh, maybe some more career opportunities for her. So I feel like we're, you know, we've definitely not seen the last of Gabrielle Union. She's she's going to be on our screens again soon, I reckon. Yeah, she's um, been around and been popular. I think she does have like a really big following. But what I think is interesting about Bring It On and the parts that made me cringe was yes. um, some really problematic homophobia and like weird, um, <laughs> yes. weird sex comments about like fingering people without their consent. And <laughs> I know a lot, a lot of dyke jokes, and it's like, wow, oh, I don't know. I know. In some ways, this movie seems so recent, and in other ways, it seems so old. Speaking of problematic, um, her boyfriend and also Cliff <laughs> and her little brother, like everyone's just so problematic. <laughs> Isn't Cliff her boyfriend? Who's Cliff? Oh wait, oh her boyfriend. I was thinking of her love interest. So the sorry, guy her died. love interest. Aaron's Aaron's the boyfriend who's the cheater. And Which one died? He's the one that died. Cliff is oh, the love interest. I thought Cliff died. No, Cliff's alive and well. Oh, thank God. And I'm sorry yes. to hear about Aaron. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, no, her boyfriend is, like, very problematic from the start. It's not even, like, problematic. It's more like he is a villain. Like, they portray him from the first scene with him. Him, like, screeching his tires away and stuff. Yes. So it's kind of, like, no surprise at all. I think they did that so that viewers would sympathise um, with her being romantically interested in 
Cliff before things had properly ended with Aaron. And there's a bit of a love triangle where she's like blowing a kiss and they both think she's blowing to them. So I think they drew him as an archetype. So they that did. Again, audiences wouldn't I... be like, oh, how dare you? How dare you cheat on? Yeah, because that would be too problematic for, you know, um, 2000. Um, <laughs> but, um, or too confusing, you know, if there were two really great people who she was interested in. Um, but yeah. I did hear some, uh, you know, some positive uh, feedback for his acting in that role because although he was portraying this kind of gross slime ball, um, he did a really good job of that. He played a really good villain and he was a really gross guy and that was his job and he's an actor and he did a he did a kick-ass job as the irritating slime ball boyfriend. <laughs> mm. He's just so like American movie guy, bland exactly. American He's such a trope. Type. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But Cliff was very charismatic and Cliff was meant to be like the alternative guy who yeah. plays guitar and likes the clash. And, and likes to their, have a spitting competition with toothpaste with his love interest. The toothpaste thing was totally cute. It was the really cute. The toothpaste thing is iconic. <laughs> totally it is cute iconic. toothpaste cute. flirt. I enjoyed it. I think it's definitely worth the rewatch. Sadly, I don't think it's on any streaming services, so keep an eye out for it. Check it out on free to wear or get the DVD if you still have a DVD player. But while I was looking for it, I was searching like every streaming service I have and I searched um, SBS on demand yeah. and something came up and I was like, oh, this must be Bring It On. No, it was Margaret and David's year 2000 review of Bring It On. <gasps> so oh my God. funny. I have to play it for you. The thing is, this film tells you a lot that you never knew about cheerleaders um, Did and, you ever want to know? But I never it? wanted to know it, and um, so I mean, it's clearly not a film made for me. It's a it's a teenage film. Yes. So the film, at least as you say, doesn't take itself too seriously. There are a few amusing moments. The cast is personal, but really, I just wished I'd been somewhere else when I was watching it. But it's an insight into a way of life in another country. Yeah. And this is multicultural television. Well, yes, but I wouldn't really recommend any of our viewers <laughs> to go and see it, unless maybe they're fifteen. Margaret and David. Exactly. Because oh. they're like, SBS is a multicultural show, but it's like, oh, life in America. Never seen that before. How yeah. groundbreaking. How groundbreaking. <laughs> but I do love He's the so thought funny. that they watched it. For uh, sure. I love the thought that they watched it too. They are just an Australian iconic duo. And I'm so sad that they don't do movie reviews anymore because now I'm actually interested in what they have to say. Whereas back then I was like, oh, dad, why are we watching this again? Well, check them out. Their archives then on SBS On Demand because you can watch, like, look up for your old favourite movies. <laughs> I've heard that there's a drinking game associated with Margaret and David's TV, um, TV movie reviews. And yes. it's every time Margaret goes, <laughs> makes that sound when she laughs, laughs that you have so to take funny. a drink. <laughs> <laughs> creative and so hilarious and I want to do that so yeah we really need to prioritize that with a watch party or something that would just be wonderful and um if you haven't been sold bring it on by this conversation you need to watch it just for the reminder of what we used to dress like in the 90s and what we did with our hair it is horrific yeah the little (laughs) clips the little butterfly (gasps) clips all over your head what was the little you know, stretchy arm things to make yourself look like a badass and stuff. Just, yeah, real bad, real bad. <laughs> and, uh, but on that note, what hills are we going to die on this week? The hills are 
have to die on is pretty lame this week, I have to say. But um, <laughs> what it is, is that instant coffee is not that bad. It's really not that bad. Ah, that's controversial for Melbourne. It is controversial for Melbourne and I'm But like, you live in Bendigo now, so. I live in Bendigo, but everyone's still a coffee snob. It's still Victoria. Um, and I'm also a coffee snob. Like, I honestly think that instant coffee um, is totally fine. And, you know, I'd much rather an instant coffee that I've made myself than risking getting a terrible latte. Because a terrible latte is way worse than an instant coffee. And I know that I'm probably going to get some trolls here. But, I mean, I love a latte. Don't get me wrong. I love the ritual of a latte. I love getting my latte in the morning. Recently, I've been drinking a bit more instant coffee because I've been on a bit of a tighter budget given, you know, just with everyday expenses like your dog needing cataract surgery, um, (laughs) needing insulin, diabetic food, and, you know, just waiting for that insurance to come through. I've been having a lot of instants. And I was like... I think admitting you're drinking instant coffee is so brave, babe. It's so brave. I'm so brave. (laughs) I deserve a medal. Um, And, you know, I think that everyone's like, ew, oh, no, could never drink instant. And I think people just kind of like walk around with this like coffee snobbery when actually it's just kind of like a fun thing to say and like to the ritual to get your latte in the morning like I don't think anyone really hates instant coffee I don't I think that I think that people are just like just like the ritual and also like you know a latte is different because you've got more milk than you you know water it's the froth the difference is the froth and the froth but a lot of people get a flat white or a latte like it's really not that different it still has been frothed in a different way than um (laughs) an instant coffee i will disagree with you but i also have a 600 hundred dollar espresso machine you do and it is amazing i've been living my best life during (laughs) covid (laughs) it is very very amazing and i still get my coffee in the morning and i love being like oh my god i need a coffee need a real coffee oh my god such a good coffee you know but i think that part of us like just love to kind of um fall into that stereotype very lorelei gilmore you know very coffee gotta get my coffee you know but lorelei doesn't have a latte they have American drip coffee, much yeah. closer to instant. They have, yeah, horrific coffee. <laughs> Way worse than instant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think this is an interesting one. I think, like, um, instant coffee is kind of becoming cool. Like, it's retro. It's different. It's, like, I ironically drink yeah. 143. Exactly. Like, Margaret like, and actually, David. Like, you know, bad. It's a throwback. Like, you know what else is a throwback? Instant roast. You know, like, before yeah. Makona and before Nescafe, when it was just, like, in a tin and you popped it off with a spoon. Like, that literally smells iconic. like childhood to me. Like, it just smells like, Aww. you know, home, you know, getting coffee. That's what my dad used to drink. And you know, it's just not the same, him drinking Makona. It's just not the same. Instant roast is great. <laughs> so that's my hill. One. That's my hill. I don't agree with you, but I respect you for it. So Thank you, babe. Good job, babe. Thank you, babe. Um, the hill I'm going to die on is that cheerleading is like so outdated as a concept and needs to just not be a thing anymore. Oh. And the new documentary Cheer also demonstrates the athleticism involved. But I think the fact it's called cheerleading and... It is derived from women standing on the sidelines and being in an inferior position. They just need to just start calling it gymnastics and just don't like, why are you still wearing a little skirt? And if you do not agree with me that it positions women as Mm. inferior, then listen to this, which is that 
for the AFL grand final this year, which all the male players will obviously get paid heaps of money for, they yes. just recently did a job ad to get cheerleaders to um, cheer at the grand final. Guess how much they're paying them per hour? How much? Nothing. What? Literally nothing. That's how not valued it is. And I think it's like inherently But are they sexist. literally just, you know, waving pom-poms or are they actually No, being... they're, they're, dan- they're dancing. They're cheerleaders. But are they doing flips and things like they are in cheer? Because that documentary is unbelievable and I will not have you say a bad word about it. It is amazing. I mean, they're not the Clovers and the Toros. They're cheer leading on the sidelines. But as like they kind of brush it aside and bring it on. They're like football games are just our practices. But it's still born out of that, and I think it's still, like, it's just outdated. I think you've got a really fair point, but at the same time, that is where it was derived from, and basically what cheerleading communities want now is just recognition, insurance, and, you know, somewhere to go, because these cheerleaders who train, and they're young, and they put their bodies through horrific things, also it's incredibly dangerous, it's one of the most, uh, like, dangerous sports you can do, Um, and a lot of insurances won't cover it, and also there's nowhere to go, there's no career, there's no Olympics, there's no, you know, as an adult, you can't really do cheerleading anymore. It's pretty much when you turn 21, you know, you don't do college cheerleading anymore. And a lot of college cheerleaders never go to football games. They actually just practice and rehearse. And And nor should they. I think that's the thing. They need to call it just group gymnastics, get rid of the football game element. And if they're going to have pathways for it and it's going to be a real sport, that's good. You know, then they'll be able to have career pathways. But how it's currently configured, it's just totally backwards. Yeah, I, I hear. Yeah. And I had to, you know... We wouldn't be fair to talk about Bring It On without talking about, like, the more darker side of cheerleading, even though the cheer doco is really good. 100%. All right. Well, let's get into some recommendations. So my first recommendation this week is a fantastic show that's just dropped on Netflix. It's called The Duchess. Have you seen it floating around on your recommendation list, Chris? I have heard... I've heard people talk about it. She's a good mum but a bad person. That's what I've heard about it. (laughs) Kind of, yes. Um, So it's created and starring a comedian who I've also never seen and her stand-up is also amazing called Catherine Ryan. And she's absolutely epic. My friend Jess recommended this to me. Um, She basically is a single mum who wants to – have another baby via a sperm donor while she's actually dating somebody um, because that's the best way for her to, um, you know, be separated from heartbreak and broken families uh, to give her child a sibling. And it's, it, it's really funny. There's only six episodes um, and they're like 25 minutes each. Like you can just binge this in a single evening, you know, like it's so Is that good. the whole season or is more that's coming? That's the whole season, sadly. Oh, cool. I like that. I like that. I don't like it. I wanted more. But um, it's really, really funny. She's a feminist, loud, proud woman. She's also kind of selfish, but also has some really good elements. Like she's a cool mom. Um, you know, it's an interesting relationship that she has with her kid. And also um, this isn't exactly her life, but she does have a you know similar situation in her real life, which obviously sparked the you know writing for this show. It's really funny. Um, it's really different portrayal of a single woman with a child who wants children. Um, I think that's a really cool, um, really cool new new idea. Um, 
that should be celebrated. And I just, I love her. She's hilarious. And her stand-up is also hilarious. So yeah, you got to check it out. I actually think I will check that out. That, yeah. That does sound really good. It's really and good. Look, I know you said you were sad that it ended so quickly, but the fact that it's only six episodes is, is appealing to me. It's like, oh, I don't have to watch like... 17 seasons. seasons of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which, as an update, I'm like only up to season 15 or something. And new episodes are coming out. It's like you can never get on top of it. It's oh. like bloody laundry. You do a bit and more comes. You do a bit and more comes. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> My first one's a bit different. It's a song. Mm-hmm. So... Last week's heavy rotation song uh, was Patrick from Schitt's Creek singing Simply the Best, which we sampled on last week's episode. But that has been taken over by this new song, which I'm obsessed with, called If the World Was Ending. Okay. And it's like this really beautiful, poetic, dramatic song. It's like a movie. You might hate it, but like I'm obsessed with it. It's by some guy I've never heard of called J.P. Sachs and... It features Julia Michaels, who I have heard of. She's quite famous. Yeah. And the plot of the song is it's about a couple who've broken up and you get the vibe they had a bit of like a toxic relationship. They've decided it's better that they're broken up. But if the world was ending and it's the apocalypse and it was the last night on earth, would they spend their last night on earth together? It's like totally bleak, but it's like really beautiful. It's like if there was no consequences for like... We know our relationship's bad, but the whole world's ending anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really beautiful and has a cool story behind it that they kind of had heard each other's music. They like messaged each other on Instagram, met up to write this song together and they um, wrote it the day they met. And then they like fell in love writing this song and now they've been together for like a year and they're quarantining together. So they're like, the world is ending and we're like staying over. Oh, so kind of cute backstory as well. Oh, so, that's yeah. beautiful. It's my I love new that. Obsession. Okay, I'm yeah. definitely going to check that one out. That's awesome. Um, my next one is so good. Um, you might have seen the show or heard about it. It's called The Good Fight, which is a spin-off yes. of The Good Wife. Yes. It's fantastic. I love this one. It is fantastic. Um, I've watched uh, the three seasons that are currently out and season four uh, is up to, I think, episode two that's um, just dropped. Anyway, the show's amazing. Watch the show. But season four, episode one is like this amazingly written standalone episode that if you haven't seen any of the prior episodes, like you don't even need to. It's how interesting. pretty much like she's in a a dream um the main actress who's the main lawyer woman and she's really funny and it's it's as if the last four years while she's been working at this firm that Mm. she just wakes up and doesn't remember anything that's happened but Hillary was actually president and Donald Trump never won and what the world looks like now. And it is so freaking funny and interesting. And you're just like, whoa. And obviously so, so relevant given that, you know, mm. Trump's a total douche. He, you know, just got COVID. He's about to almost mm. have another chance at having another four years as president. And um, it's just so interesting, you know, to have that sliding doors moment of what could it have been like if Hillary Mm. won? And so there's these really interesting and positive things. And then there's also there was no Me Too movement. 
And so she finds herself representing Harvey oh, Weinstein and she's like, so but he's a rapist, but he's a rapist and da, 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 da. And you're just like, holy shit. I guess like Trump being elected was a huge propeller for the Me Too movement. And um, so it's a really interesting take. Um, this single standalone episode, it is just absolute brilliance and you honestly don't even need to have seen the whole show or continue to watch the show um but you should mm. um but it is a standalone brilliant piece of writing i highly recommend yeah. that you check it out i think it's really interesting that the good fight is so political in a way that the good wife never really was. wasn't no and i think it's interesting as well that you actually don't need to have seen the good wife to enjoy the good fight i never watched it I think you should check out The Good Wife um, because you're always looking for shows and it is, it's interesting in a different way. It has subtle political things, but The Good Fight is just overtly political. And that episode that you just described sounds so good. I absolutely oh, will watch that for sure. Brilliant. I'm a bit behind on The Good so Fight. So brilliant. Uh, now, I, now I need to immediately get back into it. You do. And for my final recommendation for this week... It's the new Sherlock Holmes movie on Netflix, Enola Holmes. Is it a movie or a TV series? It's a movie. It's a movie. Oh. So Millie, Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things plays Sherlock Holmes' little sister, Enola. So mm-hmm. it is a movie, but they're definitely setting it up to be a franchise because okay. they do not give you all the answers you need in this they solve like this side mystery, but they don't solve like the main mystery. Clearly they want to like tell lots of more stories before mm-hmm. they tell mm-hmm. you the main mystery. But it's entertaining. It's good. That Millie Bobby awesome. Brown was like a real highlight from Stranger Things. I think she's fantastic. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I've heard some really great things, but I don't like I never really fo- followed a lot of the Sherlock. You don't have to. Again, Stuff? it's standalone. Okay. And perfect. actually, they are getting sued by the Sherlock Holmes estate. What? Because there is like, say there's like 20 published Sherlock Holmes books and then there's 15 that were never published that are just copyright to the Sherlock Holmes estate. And they say that in Enola Holmes, they portrayed Sherlock too kind and he's meant to be like quite rude in the published books and he only becomes kind in the unpublished books. So they say they've like violated their private copyright content. How is anybody and supposed to know that they're violating them if they were never published? That's so stupid. Yeah. Like, I mean, but also every, he's like barely even in it. So everyone's just like, go away. Yeah, go away. Stop trying to scrounge some more money yeah pretty much (laughs) but one of the bits about it that makes it really compelling um and like entertaining is that Millie Bobby Brown breaks the fourth wall a lot so something will be happening and then she'll like turn over her shoulder and like address the camera and the audience directly risky move "Mm." usually I hate that but yeah there's only one exception well there is one exception and definitely Enola Holmes has been influenced by Fleabag yeah. which does this and has made this a huge thing. And Fleabag is something that you're obsessed with, I love as well, and yes. inspired by Millie Bobby Brown's Breaking the Fourth Wall and this concept, we're actually going to talk about Fleabag as our trash next week. Thank God. It's so overdue. Like, we need to talk about the priest, the beautiful Irish priest. He's just yes. everything. <laughs> We did mention him in passing in our Normal People episode, but we We need to go into a lot more detail um, because, yeah, Fleabag is groundbreaking. 
totally is. And uh, another groundbreaking show on Netflix is The Social Dilemma, which has come out. Mm. Um, and a lot of people are talking about, you know, data tracking, uh, big data, uh, what the internet, you know, is sort of keeping track of and, you know, how we're being advertised to and what sort of information are they taking. Uh, and we touched on this in our AI episode, I believe. Um, we always said we were going to do an episode on big data and I think, mm. yeah, now's the time. Everyone's talking about social uh, the social dilemma and, yeah, it's it's a very, very interesting topic. Yeah, I think the other reason why it's timely that we talk about big data is because – in the 2016 election between Trump and Hillary, big data actually played a huge role in the way they were able to target certain messages to people that other people couldn't see based on this demographic info. And like, I think it'll be really interesting to unpack whether that's still occurring or whether it's changed because those targeted ads from big data are quite concerning. They really are. They really are, um, especially, uh, you know, um, you know, heading towards 30 and getting so many ads, like still looking for that special someone. <laughs> How rude. <laughs> like, I feel screw you, Facebook. <laughs> like, I don't have to explain myself to you. You don't know my life. <laughs> that is so rude. So I get rude. the ones that I've mentioned before because I'm obsessed with Frozen. It's like, ages three to eight, sing <laughs> yeah. along to Elsa and Anna with the sounds of Frozen. And I'm like, I really want to do that. <laughs> Sometimes the targeted ads are pretty on point, I will say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, join us for that hilarious and informative conversation next week. Please note that the views expressed within this podcast are our own and we are not experts. We have done some serious Googling and even some serious internet deep dives, but we are by no means qualified. If you need actual advice please speak to a licensed professional. We can even help you Google one.